One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Due to the graphic nature of this criminal's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, terrorism, torture, and suicide that some may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. North Korean spies Kim Hyun-hui and Kim Sung-il waited nervously for their plane at the Bahrain airport. Their mission had gone according to plan. They had planted a bomb that took down Korean Air Flight 858, bound for Seoul, South Korea. But now the spies were having difficulty leaving the country. Disguised as Japanese father-daughter tourists, they hoped to escape to Rome, but their flight to Rome had just left without them. A man from the Japanese embassy approached them. He knew their Japanese passports were fake. The game was up. The two spies were taken into custody. Kim Hyun-hui was just 25 years old, and she was terrified. She thought of her family back home in North Korea and what would happen to them when the government found out she had been caught. Kim Sung-il turned to her and told her it was time. They must kill themselves now to escape the torture and interrogation. They had cyanide tablets hidden in the end of two cigarettes, a backup plan for instant death. As police officers came into the room and grabbed them, Sung Il took one cigarette and gave the other to Hyun Hui. One of the officers noticed and rushed over to stop them, but it was too late. Kim Hyun Hui bit into her cyanide capsule, and everything went black. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Sammy Nye. This is Female Criminals. Today we're finishing up our two-part episode about Kim Hyun-hui, the North Korean spy who planted a bomb on a plane heading for Seoul in November 1987, killing all 115 people on board. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of ParCast shows on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Many of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. 
Kim Hyun-hui was the perfect North Korean child. She grew up under Kim Il-sung's reign during the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. She was in all of the pro-government child organizations, acted in propaganda films, and believed everything she was taught about North Korea. It was the best country on earth. She was recruited by the North Korean government to work as a spy when she was 18 years old. After years of intense training and seclusion from her family, she was sent on two missions to report on conditions in the capitalist countries of Europe, as well as capitalist Macau and China. She missed her family. Her younger brother had died at age 15 while she was away as a spy, and she had become estranged from her parents during her time away. Finally, at the age of 25, she was given a gift. She would go on one last mission for North Korea. Then, she would be set free from her espionage work and would be able to return to her family. In episode one, we talked about Hyun Hui's upbringing, her espionage training, and her final mission, to plant a bomb on Korean Air Flight 858. In this episode, we'll discuss the aftermath of her crime, her trial, and her awakening to the truth about the world outside of North Korea. On November 29, 1987, 25-year-old Kim Hyun-hui and her espionage partner, Kim Sung-il, who was in his 60s, planted a bomb inside a radio and brought it on board Korean Air Flight 858. They left the bomb in the overhead compartment and deplaned for a layover in Abu Dhabi. They didn't get back on board. As the plane continued on to Seoul, the bomb exploded, taking the plane down and killing all 115 people on board. Back at the Abu Dhabi airport, Hyun Hui felt a sense of relief. She had done her job and made it off the plane alive. Now, she and Sung Il would just have to escape back to North Korea. Now that they'd deplaned from Flight 858, their plan was to transfer to another flight headed to Rome by way of Amman, Jordan. They would stay in Rome for a few days under the guise of being Japanese tourists. Then they would head to the North Korean embassy in Vienna, Austria, where they would again stay for a few days before being guided back to North Korea. Finally, Hyun Hui could see the light at the end of the tunnel. Free from espionage service, she would be able to reconnect with her family and pursue the life of a diplomat, her goal before she was forced into espionage. But shortly after deplaning from Flight 858, Hyun Hui and Sung Il almost immediately hit a snag in their plan. In the airport lounge, they ran into a security guard who was checking and collecting tickets. In the 80s, airport security was much more lax than it is today. The spies hadn't counted on a guard being there, and even if there was a guard, they probably thought he would just glance at their tickets and let them pass. But now they'd encountered a guard who was actually inspecting and collecting the tickets. This was a problem because their flight path would look extremely suspicious under close inspection. They had originally left from Baghdad on Korean Air Flight 858, which was headed east briefly stopping in Abu Dhabi and Bangkok on the way to Seoul. But upon checking their tickets, the guard would see that Hyun Hui and Sung Il were getting off Flight 858 in Abu Dhabi and suddenly making an unusual switch to a different flight going westward to Rome. There were many flights that would have gone straight from Baghdad to Rome, so Hyun Hui knew their tickets would raise alarm. 
After all, they were supposed to be tourists. Wouldn't tourists choose the most direct way to get from one capital city to another? Lucky for the spies, they had a backup plan. They had been given decoy tickets that went from Baghdad to Abu Dhabi and then on to Bahrain. It would look like their plan all along was to get off Korea Air Flight 858 and switch planes to travel to Bahrain. This would look much less suspicious than their real tickets, which would show them getting off their ticketed flight halfway through to head in the opposite direction. If anyone saw these tickets after the bomb exploded, it wouldn't leave much doubt as to who'd left it there. Hyun Hui and Sung Il handed over the decoy tickets instead of their real tickets, hoping it would throw the guards off their scent. Their plan was now to board the flight to Bahrain and buy new tickets to Rome once they got there. It's unclear why the spies were required to loop back around to Rome at all, instead of continuing in a less suspicious direction. If the plan sounds a little shaky and confusing, it sounded that way to Sung Il, too. Sung Il had been a spy for many years, entrusted to take many of North Korea's most important missions. But he didn't like this plan. He thought it was too convoluted, and there were too many ways for it to fail. But Hyun Hui was sure the backup plan would work. The tickets were real, and Hyun Hui and Sung Il looked innocent. There was no reason not to believe they were just two Japanese tourists traveling to Bahrain. The guard took their tickets and disappeared. He was gone for hours. Both spies were worried they'd somehow blown their cover. Finally, right before the flight to Bahrain was set to take off, the guard returned, and Hyun Hui and Sung Il were given back their tickets. The spies were relieved. They boarded the flight to Bahrain, now traveling on their backup route. While in Bahrain, they tried for several days to get flight tickets to Rome, but they kept meeting complications. The airport's ticket office was closed. The new flight they booked was already full, and there were other run-of-the-mill airport issues. So Hyun Hui and Sung Il became sitting ducks, hunkered down in a Bahrain hotel for three days. They tried to keep up the pretense that they were Japanese tourists, so they did a little bit of shopping and dining out. But they were uncomfortable with the whole thing. Sung Il's stomach wasn't doing well, and his worrying wasn't helping. Hyun Hui found it difficult to keep her nerves together as she attempted to maintain her cover story. After several days, the Japanese embassy called their hotel and asked for their passport information. Sung Il gave it to them. Later that day, representatives from the South Korean embassy came to the hotel. The people from the embassy told Sung Il and Hyun Hui that Flight 858 had crashed, killing all 115 people on board. Hyun Hui could tell right away that they suspected her involvement. She struggled to maintain her cover story. They were Japanese tourists, and they knew nothing about the crash. After a long conversation, the people from the embassy left, but they continued to watch the hotel room for the whole night. Hyun Hui and Sung Il knew they were being watched. They were concerned, but not about what they'd done or the people they'd killed. They were concerned for their own safety. In her autobiography, Hyun Hui says, quote, I confess that I felt no remorse at the time, and that I was relieved to know for certain that we had accomplished our mission and been faithful to Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, end quote. We talked in the last episode about how it's hard to believe Hyun Hui didn't feel remorse for killing 115 people. 
That's right. We mentioned this could be because of the fact that she killed from afar. She wasn't on the plane when the people died, and she didn't witness it. So it may have been easier for her to distance herself from what she'd done. But more than that, she felt she was doing a service to her country. She believed the bombing would reunite the two Koreas. And afterwards, she would be able to live happily ever after with her family. There have been many psychological studies done about killing out of a sense of duty to one's country. Author Phil Zabriskie studied U.S. soldiers in his Newsweek article titled Killing for a Living, The Rush and the Remorse. He talks about how specific situations can affect how a person copes with killing. Before we jump into the psychology, just a quick disclaimer. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Sammy. Since Hyun Hui was killing for her country and was trained to see South Korea as the enemy, it's easy to see similarities between her actions and the actions of soldiers fighting combat. Zabriskie says, quote, Not everyone who kills in combat is ruined by it or even affected by it in any significant manner. Many find ways to reconcile what they've done and have full, productive, professional and personal lives, end quote. So rather than focusing on what she'd done, Hyun Hui focused on getting back to North Korea. She dismissed the lives she'd taken as collateral damage in a larger goal, serving her country and being reunited with her family. After several days camped out in Bahrain, Hyun Hui and Sung Il returned to the Bahrain airport, hoping to head to Rome before the South Korean embassy could question them any further. But at the airport, they were stopped by a Japanese embassy official. The embassy knew their Japanese passports were fake. As the police came to apprehend them, Hyun Hui and Sung Il bit into the poisonous cyanide tablets they'd hidden in the end of cigarettes. For decades, spies have used cyanide tablets as a failsafe. If they were captured, they could avoid spilling state secrets by committing suicide before the interrogations began. Sung Il died almost instantly. Hyun Wee bit into hers, and everything went black. As Hyun Wee wrote in her autobiography, quote, The faithful daughter of Kim Il Sung, trained for years like some obedient dog, died at that moment. End quote. A part of her may have died, but not all of her. She woke up in a hospital bed. Hyun Wee was confused. She didn't know where she was, and for a moment, she honestly thought she was dead. She wished she was dead. She even tried to commit suicide while she was in the hospital. In her autobiography, she talks about wanting to cut herself with scissors, bite her tongue to kill herself, or suffocate herself. Perhaps she thought it would be easier to die than to live with her guilt. While she was in the hospital, she had a lot of time to think. She began to feel remorse for what she'd done. In her autobiography, Hyun Wee says, quote, I no longer felt proud of my mission. I began to think of the human lives that had been lost, and I was sorry, end quote. According to therapist Margellis Felstad in a Psychology Today article, quote, Remorse involves self-reproof, admitting one's own mistakes and taking responsibility for your actions. It creates a sense of guilt and sorrow for hurting someone else and leads to confession and true apology, end quote. It's likely Hyun Wee was already feeling this guilt and remorse when she tried to commit suicide. Whether the guilt was over failing her mission, committing murder, 
or the trouble she'd caused her family, she may have tried to harm herself in order to punish herself. In 2007, psychological researchers Rob Nalison and Marcel Zeilenberg discovered that people who feel guilty often harm themselves or deprive themselves of pleasure as punishment. They call this the Dobby effect. The Dobby effect is named after a character in the Harry Potter book series by J.K. Rowling. Dobby is a house elf who is forced to hurt himself if he disobeys his master's commands. According to an article about the Dobby effect in the Pacific Standard, quote, when the ability to compensate for an offense is not possible, a person is more likely to inflict punishment on himself, end quote. When she was forced to stop physically harming herself, Hyun Wee's subconscious guilt seemed to take over. While she was in the hospital, she had nightmares about her family being on the plane as it crashed. In order to curb these awful feelings, she tried something she'd never done before. She prayed. Religion was banned in North Korea. The closest thing North Koreans had to a deity was Kim Il-sung, their dictator, who had tens of thousands of statues and monuments in his honor around the country. But citizens couldn't practice any formal religion. According to Hyun Hui, shortly before her brother Bum Su had died, she saw her mother placing water on an altar she'd made as offerings to God. Hyun Hui's family had never been religious, but her mother was desperate. And now she felt desperate. But she wasn't praying to get better or be set free. She was praying to God to let her die. She was worried that she wouldn't be able to keep her identity and mission a secret if she was tortured. If she gave up any information, her family would be taken to concentration camps or killed by the North Korean government. Hyun Hui stayed quiet for two weeks while she was interrogated by Bahrain police. She tried to pretend she was Chinese, and she came up with a backstory for her character. She knew she would eventually be sent to South Korea, and she was afraid of what would happen. She had heard stories of South Koreans badly torturing prisoners. After two weeks in Bahrain, she was taken to Seoul, South Korea, and interrogated for eight days. In Seoul, she changed her story again and claimed she was Japanese. The officers quizzed her by asking her to draw a Japanese cab, asking what the layout of the Tokyo airport was like, and more. But she couldn't get these questions right because she'd never been to Japan. Eventually, the officers spoke in Korean, and they noticed that Hyun Hui clearly recognized the language. They knew they had her. The officers told her they knew she was a North Korean spy, they even knew her spy name, Okwa. But instead of locking Hyun Hui in a jail cell, the officers wanted to hold out in order to get a confession. They did something that might seem very strange. They took Hyun Hui into the city. And on this tour of Seoul, she watched the fabric of everything she knew and believed unravel before her eyes. We'll continue the story after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, gift mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Now back to the story. It was January 1988. After days of interrogation in Seoul, South Korean officers told 26-year-old Kim Hyun-hui that they knew about her secret identity as a North Korean spy. But she kept mum about her role in the Flight 858 bombing. She was still afraid to confess her crimes. Now she was in a car with South Korean guards being driven around Seoul. This may seem strange, but there was a very good reason for it. The officers wanted Hyun-hui to see what Seoul was really like. They wanted to show her the truth, so she could separate it from all the lies she'd been told about Seoul while she was growing up. They hoped that realizing these lies would prompt her to confess. Hyun Hui had been taught that South Korea was a place where everyone lived in poverty and innocent people were routinely tortured by the government. Kim Il-sung wanted to liberate the South Korean people by taking their country under his control. This is what Hyun Hui believed she was fighting for. But what she saw in Seoul was something very different. She had seen thriving cities in Europe and China when she went on her first two missions, but she never would have believed Seoul was just as prosperous. In her autobiography, Hyun Hui writes about the awe she experienced seeing Seoul for the first time. Something she paid special attention to were all the cars. She says, quote, in North Korea, only high-ranking party officials or government ministers drove cars. To become a driver was one of the most coveted professions among young people, at least among men. Women wouldn't dream of driving cars, end quote. But here in Seoul, nearly every family had a car, and both men and women were allowed to drive. Not only that, but these cars were actually made in South Korea, proof that their economy was thriving. Hyun Wee also notes in her autobiography that she was shocked to see street vendors selling nice items. She says, quote, In the North, I'd been told that roadside peddlers were the lowliest people in the South, but the merchandise they were selling was anything but lowly. The peddlers here looked as though they were earning a fortune from their sales. End quote. Some of us might not even notice something as mundane as the quality of a street vendor's wares, but to Hyun Hui, this stood out as a very specific, blatant lie that she couldn't reason around. That ride through Seoul changed Hyun Hui's life. She says, quote, I couldn't shake the feeling that the first 26 years of my life had been something of a sham. I felt a surge of hatred for Kim Il-sung as I realized that all of my work and plans and training, indeed, my entire life, had been founded upon lies, end quote. 
Though the intricacies of North Korean society are complicated, it's easy to see that North Korean citizens like Hyun Hui were essentially brainwashed by Kim Il-sung's cult of personality from the time they were born. We talked a bit about this in part one. According to an article from psychologistworld.com, quote, the concept of brainwashing first came into public use during the Korean War in the 1950s as an explanation for why a few American GIs appeared to defect to the communists, end quote. During the Korean War, American POWs were kept under terrible conditions in North Korea. Another article from intropsych.com states, quote, there was no contact with life outside the prison camps. The North Koreans fostered mutual suspicion among the captors by rewarding some for spying on others. The only intellectual stimulation permitted was propaganda, information provided by the North Koreans." End quote. This sounds a lot like Hyun Hui's upbringing. As we discussed in part one, Hyun Hui and her fellow classmates were sent off to enforce laws around the city as children. Hyun Hui also remembers spies in her neighborhood, who would report on any family's wrongdoings. These families were then sent to concentration camps. Additionally, the only media allowed in North Korea was government-controlled propaganda. Studies on the aforementioned POWs showed that many of the soldiers were just cooperating with their captors in order to survive. Their ideals weren't necessarily changed by the brainwashing techniques. At the end of the war, only 21 out of 4,000 POWs chose to stay in North Korea. The rest went home and exhibited no long-term change in their beliefs. But the POWs were held under these conditions for a relatively short period of time. Hyun Hui and her fellow North Koreans knew nothing else from the time they were born. They were much more susceptible to their country's brainwashing. Her whole life, Hyun Hui had given everything to a country that she believed in. Now, as she saw the real South Korea, she had to come to terms with the fact that everything she'd been taught since childhood was a lie. She had killed 115 people for no reason. The guilt was unbearable. Though she was still afraid what would happen to her family back in North Korea if she confessed, she decided she had to. She told the South Korean officials everything about her life as a spy and her role in the Flight 858 bombing. It took eight hours for her to get it all out in the open. In her autobiography, she says, quote, I felt empty. They now knew almost as much about me as I did myself. But a soft but inexorable voice in the back of my head knew that I and my family were done for, end quote. The day after she confessed, Hyun Hui asked a female guard named Lee Oak if they could go explore Seoul so she could see more about how people lived. Lee Oak agreed to take her around the city. Lee Oak showed her around and took her shopping. She bought Hyun Hui a Korean-made scarf, and Hyun Hui bought Korean face cream for herself. She enjoyed it immensely. She had never had anything so luxurious before. On another outing, days later, she and Lee Oak went out to eat lunch, and she overheard people talking about the plane bombing. Some of them were even mentioning her by name. She couldn't handle hearing the gossip, and she eventually stood up and yelled at two men who were talking about her. The men were shocked. They recognized her from the photos on the news. Before they could say or do anything else, 
Li Ok and the other guards rushed Hyun Hui out of the restaurant. Remember, Hyun Hui bombed a Korean plane on which all but two passengers were South Korean. It's no wonder people were talking about her. She was probably the biggest villain in the country at this time. It was pretty naive for Hyun Hui to ask to be taken out in public and not expect to be recognized. But she was pretty naive and sheltered from her upbringing in North Korea. She was probably just curious to see what was out there. It's also possible that she was intentionally seeking out public rebukes. There may have been some sort of desire for punishment and ridicule in her head caused by her guilt. Eventually, the city became too much for Hyun Hui, and she asked Lee Oak to bring her back to her cell in Namsan prison. But hiding away in prison wouldn't protect Hyun Hui from the court of public opinion for long. She was told she would be required to publicly confess to her crimes at a televised press conference on January 15, 1988. She begged to be put to death immediately instead of going through that. She didn't think she could face the guilt and shame of the press conference. But that wasn't an option. She did as she was told and delivered a pre-written statement on national television. In her autobiography, Hyun Hui says the press conference left her feeling numb. She struggled to remember what happened there. She only remembers feeling, quote, constantly oppressed by the thought that my family was surely done for now that my confession was public, end quote. She fell into a deep depression after the press conference, thinking about her crimes and her family's fate now that she'd publicly confessed to the crime. The investigators showed her sympathy. They brought her to a theme park and gave her a television to try to lift her spirits. One day, Hyun Wee caught news from North Korea on the TV. The North Korean newscast was displaying photos of the Flight 858 incident, alongside the photo of Hyun Wee as a child, presenting flowers to a delegation from South Korea that had been widely circulated in the South in the aftermath of the bombing. But the photo of Hyun Hui as a child was accompanied by a video of a woman named Chung Hee Soon, who claimed that she, not Hyun Hui, was the girl in the photo. According to the North Korean media, the plane bombing never happened at all. The South Koreans were making it all up, choosing photos at random to create a criminal, essentially blaming North Korea for something they had never done. Hyun Hui was shocked and horrified. She'd been led to believe that the bombing was an act of heroism that would bring pride to her country. But instead, her country was denying that the tragedy even happened and that she even existed. In her autobiography, she writes, quote, My country, for whom I had killed 115 people and nearly died myself, had turned its back on me. First they had used me, now they had abandoned me. I cannot describe the sense of betrayal I felt. It seemed as though I had lived 26 years for nothing. And indeed, in North Korea, I no longer existed. I had become an unperson, and my family would become unpeople. In this moment, Hyun Wee decided she would no longer identify as North Korean. It was a tragic realization at what she was sure was the end of her life. Hyun Hui was sure she would be executed for her crime. In fact, she felt she deserved it. But first, she had to wait. She wouldn't even go on trial for more than a year. While she was imprisoned, she read books and discovered religion. She liked to read Western books and watch Western films, 
things she had never had access to in North Korea. She struggled with depression during her time in prison. Severe depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and anxiety are already common in North Korean defectors. When you add in the fact that Hyun Hui believed she was about to be executed, she must have been dealing with a cocktail of psychiatric issues. Hyun Hui was sorry for what she had done and regretted everything that had led to her terrible crime. Now, she had to wait in a prison cell until she would be sentenced to death. She must have been terrified. In the United States, where death row inmates are usually kept in solitary confinement, sometimes for decades, a psychological disorder called death row syndrome has been discovered in which inmates experience severe depression and apathy. According to the American Civil Liberties Union, these inmates often give up appealing their sentences and resign themselves to being executed. The ACLU's website says, more than 10% of the 1,323 executions since 1976 were of those who dropped their appeals and sought execution. We should note that though Hyun Hui was in a prison cell by herself, she wasn't exactly in solitary confinement. She had day-to-day -day interactions with her guards, and they even took her outside once in a while. But still, she seemed to be experiencing many of the same psychological side effects as death row inmates. Finally, on March 7, 1989, when Hyun Hui was 27 years old, her trial began. It was nearly a year and a half after the bombing. She was being charged with six counts, including mass murder and destruction of an aircraft. According to an LA Times article, 1,500 police officers stood guard outside the courthouse. Hyun Hui was brought into the building by security guards as family members of the victim shouted and lunged at her. Kim Hyun Hui pled guilty to all counts. She claimed she was numb during the trial. She felt terrible for what she'd done and just wanted to get it over with. The trial lasted 20 days, and on March 27th, she was sentenced to the death penalty. Authorities didn't set an execution date right away, but told Hyun Hui she would die within six months. Understandably, Hyun Hui became depressed again after the trial. She liked the new thing she had discovered in Seoul during her time there, and she was sad to die after just discovering a whole new reality outside of North Korea. But she also felt she deserved to die for what she'd done. But then, one day in April 1990, Hyun Hui saw a guard watching the news. It was a piece about her. The South Korean president had granted her a pardon. We'll see why after a quick break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
got your happy price, price line. Now, back to the story. In April 1990, nearly two and a half years after Hyun Hui committed mass murder by bombing an airplane, she watched as South Korea's president announced her pardon on national television. She was shocked. She wasn't told about this before seeing the newscast. She had been sentenced to death, and she couldn't figure out why she was being pardoned for a crime she was clearly guilty of. The newscaster said, quote, The president said that Kim Hyun Hui was not the true culprit in the bombing, but instead only an innocent victim of a society that continues to lack any respect for human rights and is ruled by a reign of terror, end quote. It wasn't unheard of for North Korean criminals to be pardoned by South Korea. For example, North Korean Kim Shin-jo was involved in an assassination attempt on the South Korean president in 1968. He was imprisoned and interrogated, but eventually set free and assimilated into South Korean society. It was the opinion of many South Koreans, including some of Hyun Hui's guards, that she should be pardoned, as she had been brainwashed into committing her crimes by Kim Il-sung. Hyun Hui's guards actually congratulated her on the news. But Hyun Hui didn't know how to feel. She was shocked, worried about her family back in North Korea, thankful to the South Korean government, and hopeful for the new life she was allowed to lead. After she was pardoned, Hyun Hui wasn't yet allowed to leave the prison, South Korean agents had heard that North Korean spies had been sent to kill Hyun Hui. She would have to remain in prison until the threat subsided, guarded for her protection. But during the day, she ventured out with some of her guards, exploring Seoul's parks, art museums, and churches. In July 1989, one of the guards discovered that Hyun Hui's mother had a cousin who lived in Seoul, whom Hyun Hui had never met. She finally got to meet him and his family later that month. The circumstances of their meeting were out of the ordinary. Hyun Hui and her cousin met at an assembly hall, surrounded by reporters and police. It was a heart-wrenching moment, witnessing a former North Korean spy reunite with a cousin, a North Korean defector she had never met before. Her cousin's name was Kwon Ho, and she told her things about her family she had never known. He told her that her grandfather was the wealthiest man in the city of Kaesung, North Korea, before Kim Il-sung took over after World War II and took everything away from him. Kwon Ho also told Hyun Hui that her own mother had gone to a Christian school. Hyun Hui was surprised to hear that. Her mother had never spoken about being a Christian. Her parents had grown up in a time before Kim Il-sung ruled, when people were freer and religion was allowed. But under the current government, religion was banned, and speaking about such things could have landed the entire family in a concentration camp. Hyun Hui thought back on the times she'd seen her mother praying, like before her brother Bum Su died. She realized her mother must have kept her religion a secret for their own protection. Hyun Hui wondered what other secrets her mother might have had to keep. Thinking about her mother hurt Hyun Hui. She was almost positive her entire family would now be in concentration camps or dead, and she knew it was because of her, her failed mission, her confession, her betrayal of North Korea. This was just more guilt than Hyun Hui would have to learn to deal with. Failing to commit suicide with her cyanide tablet literally gave her a whole new life. But for her family in North Korea, 
it might have ended their freedom entirely. After South Korean agents determined that the danger to Hyun-hui's life had subsided, she was released from Namsan prison. She was free to get on with her new life. She went into hiding since the threat of assassination by North Korean spies would never completely go away. She spent the next few years sharing the truth about North Korea through interviews and writing. Three years after her pardon in 1993, she wrote her autobiography, The Tears of My Soul, and donated all the proceeds to the victims of her bombing. Kim Hyun-hui is still alive to this day. She is now 56 years old and is living a secluded life, far away from the grasp of those who wish to do her harm. She married one of her bodyguards, and they have two teenage children. When the topic of her crime comes up, Kim Hyun-hui still maintains she was brainwashed by Kim Il-sung's regime. She's incredibly remorseful, and she has not committed another crime since. Sometime in the last 20 years, Hyun-hui learned that her family had been seen in a North Korean concentration camp. By now, they could be dead. Hyun-hui no doubt struggles with this information, but she tries to take advantage of her second chance at life and keep doing what she feels is right. Hyun-hui came back into the news in early 2018 when North and South Korea made a truce before the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics. In the first part of Hyun-hui's story, we mentioned that the bombing of Flight 858 was meant to create chaos and derail the 1988 Seoul Summer Olympics. Those Olympic Games went on. 20 years later, North Korea's dictator Kim Jong-un, grandson of Kim Il-sung, was vocal about North and South Korea appearing united during the 2018 Olympics. Athletes from both countries marched under the same flag and even competed on the same hockey team. Hyun-hui felt she had to say something about this. According to a Washington Post article, she was uncomfortable about the whole situation. She felt that, quote, the cooperation plays into North Korea's hands, giving the country a celebratory spotlight despite how it treats its own people, end quote. Kim Hyun-hui had learned firsthand what her country was capable of. It makes sense that she'd be wary of celebrating a government that brainwashed her into killing over a hundred people. There's a lot of debate about whether we can or should punish brainwashed individuals for crimes they commit. In an article in the Pace Law Review titled Losing Your Head in the Washer, lawyer Rebecca Emery discusses brainwashing as a legal defense. She believes a brainwashed individual should be seen as a victim and should seek rehabilitation. In Kim Hyun-hui's case, this is exactly what happened. But others who have tried to use this defense still ended up imprisoned. One high-profile brainwashing case in the United States was the Manson Girls. The Manson Girls were, in fact, grown women when they committed their crimes. Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten were in their late teens and 20s when they joined Charles Manson's cult, the Manson family. They took part in several murders at Manson's instruction in 1969. Many have argued that these women were cold-blooded murderers. Some have counter-argued that they were brainwashed and had no control over themselves when they committed the crimes. Either way, the Manson girls went to prison and stayed there. Atkins was in prison until her death in 2009. 
Krenwinkel and Van Houten are still in prison and have tried and failed multiple times to appeal their sentences. The debate over brainwashing and whether it should be seen as a reasonable defense will probably go on for decades more. But in Kim Hyun Hui's case, it seemed pretty clear. She'd been coerced into committing her crime by decades of government manipulation. A Washington Post article from January 25, 1988, written a week after Hyun Hui's public confession, talks about how the majority of South Koreans believed Kim Hyun Hui was innocent, and North Korea itself was the real culprit. The article's author, Peter Moss, says that South Korean newspapers saw her as one of Kim Il-sung's unwitting pawns. Moss notes, quote, The Korea Herald described her confession as a telling example that human conscience can triumph over manipulation or cheating, end quote. Although her crimes were forgiven, they would not be forgotten. The tragedy of the Korean Air Flight 858 bombing is a lasting reminder that anyone can be convinced to carry out an act of violence or terrorism if the circumstances are right. Instead of focusing on the individuals who are responsible for these crimes, it may be more useful to look at the organizations behind them. We can never replace the lives lost in acts of terrorism, like the Flight 858 bombing. But if we can empathize with the criminals responsible and understand why they did what they did, we're one step closer to making sure these atrocities never happen again. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. You can find more Female Criminals and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Stacey Milborn and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. 